0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 314 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Mark Hutter is a lead engineer at Landing, a new platform featuring a network of thoughtfully designed, fully furnished apartments that provide flexible living solutions for today's renters. He's also the co-organizer of the Birmingham on Rails conference in Birmingham, Alabama. He's had the privilege to work across a wide variety of tech stacks, including JavaScript, Go, and Ruby, and helped scale engineering teams and technology to significant numbers along the way. He is also a teacher, headphones junkie, and proud husband and father. I've asked Mark onto the show today because he was slated to give a talk about active storage at RailsConf 2020. I personally have been holding out on switching our web application at work to active storage because it has a lot of sizing and speed requirements. So his talk is definitely personal for me. It's great to speak with you again, Mark. Great talking to you too. Excellent. So Mark, what is your developer origin story?
1: Yeah, um, I guess you would call it traditional, non-traditional. I uh, did get a degree in computer science in college, but I didn't immediately go into it and I wasn't your... Um, like that typical story of computer interested kid. I probably didn't write my first line of code until I was in my early 20s. And uh, so probably like most you know, high school graduates, I had uh, somewhat a directionless uh, outlook and wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. So I went to community college first, which was a really fantastic experience, a great way to kind of get those uh, those basics out of the way that you may or may not, care about too much in the future. And in the process, uh, started finding an interest in computers and software development and kind of took a gamble when I transferred into a four year school to make that my major. Um, But I found I really, really enjoyed it, uh, stuck with it, it was really fascinating to me. And you know, the, the just amount you need to learn and continue to learn was always something that really drew my attention and kind of keeps me going. And then after college I got into you know I graduated 20 2009 which was kind of right in the midst of the last recession jobs were tight so I got a job at a consulting you know staff aug kind of company which put me in placed me in a lot of enterprise clients banks and energy companies and things that were using uh, your more traditional enterprise technologies, Java and .NET, and uh, you know a lot of reporting services and a lot of SQL, but that gave me a great breadth of experience toward the strengths of all those things, and um, I got to see just a lot of different tech stacks and a lot of different technologies from you know mainframes to thousands of microservices, um, and that that really comes in handy later on in your career as you're trying to do more things and. Um, Rails is one of those great things that
0: allows you to tie all that together really well. So I love your origin story. And one specific thing I wanted to call out was the idea of going to a community college to find out what you really want to do. I find that community colleges are highly underrated. After I graduated with a degree in marketing, uh, when I was working at my first job, I had kind of regretted not double majoring in computer science. So I figured, hey, I'll go back to community college and take some computer science classes. And that's where I actually had a really good time writing Visual Basic and Java and actually ended up becoming a Java tutor for the community college. So I think that is a really smart path that you took just to make sure that you truly liked coding.
1: Yeah, same. I, I cannot, um, you know, beat that drum enough of how valuable that was. I think it's a really difficult uh, question to ask an 18-year-old, like, what are you going to do for the rest of your life kind of thing? And uh, you I think you see that a lot in the outcomes of four-year programs. And community college typically are smaller. You know, the curriculums are a little more dedicated, perhaps. And uh, for me, it was great to get all of the My community college degree is in general studies. I don't even know what that really means. But all that means was when I got to a four-year institution, I could totally envelop myself in what I was majoring in. Like It wasn't spread. It was just computer science. I was a computer science and minor in music. So I could just focus on these two things that I adored and really could pour myself into something, which I think in the end
0: produced a much better outcome for me in the career field. I completely agree. I I love that you shared that part. So you mentioned that you have experience in Ruby on Rails. And of course, this is why you're on the show today. But what is your specific experience with Rails? How did you get started in it? Are you currently working with it today? I am working with it today. I started in
1: 2014. And it's pretty much been the only, you know, language framework I've used since then. I started, you know, Out of the consulting world, I moved more into product companies and I started working at smaller companies. I liked the, I like and liked the small company vibe where you you get to touch a lot of things and they were using Ruby on Rails. So I got hired actually as a Java developer, but they had some side Rails products and I was working on those things. And um, it it really like opened my eyes, just enlightened me to a lot of things. I had this really great coworker who was, you know, you're true Rubyist, like you're tried and true. We all know this person and they loved teaching and explaining and pairing. And so I would just sit with him every day and he would teach me all the things. And, you know, Rails, once it strips down, if anybody's ever had to do Java development and like, you know, do a spring configuration of dependency injection in that XML file, you understand the benefits of like stripping all that away and getting this you know convention over configuration approach because you're able it makes it makes the simple things just go away and so you can focus on the harder things and making them simple simple more simple problems
0: so can you tell us about landing including its origin story and technical stack as an apartment owner it honestly sounds like a service i'd really want to use
1: yeah, yeah, me too. I, I love working for companies that I also want to buy from. Uh, really helps motivate you toward the product. Uh, but we landing started about a year ago. Um, our founder saw some some rough patches in the process of finding a quality apartment, getting through all the paperwork and getting moved in and moving all your stuff. It all just seemed you know taxing. So he was trying to devise a solution that would get away from all that. And so, Landing offers a membership-based leasing model on these network of beautifully furnished apartments across the United States. And they're all like fully equipped, you know, linens, towels, kitchenware, internet, you name it, all the stuff already comes with the unit. And we automate away all of the nasty paperwork, you kind of fill out fill out a one-time form up front with us, the leasing is 100% online, and you get freedom to move anywhere within the network of available apartments. And so we're really trying to change the way people think about apartment living and leasing, where you can kind of get this freedom, get this flexibility and move between cities and states with your suitcase and just be drop-in ready. I think that's so awesome. So what does the current and technical stack look like? Uh, you know, it's a saying, it's like, you know, choose choose boring tech, quote unquote, write boring code, quote unquote. So we're, we're a, a Ruby on Rails monolithic application, Postgres database. Uh, there's some, Re- there are two React apps that are talking to the Rails uh, APIs. There are there's some Vue and some React on the front end, but it's mostly traditional Rails Rails partials. Um, so
0: it's kind of right up the gut. Well, I was really looking forward to your upcoming RailsCon talk. Can Active Storage be used for image serving in your modern web application? So I'm going to go ahead and do a quick read of the abstract. It's a simple question. Can Active Storage be used for image serving in your modern web apps? The answer is not so simple. Can it handle the speed requirements and side specifications of images that the modern web browsers deem as fast? We'll look at the out-of-the-box approach to active storage takes on asset serving, where it works well, resizing, versioning, and security, and where we run into rough edges, image load time, CDN integration, and next-gen format storage. And then we'll look at one pattern working in production today. So I'd like to know what kind of tools are out there to determine if our websites are actually fast enough, and what does it actually mean to be fast? Sure, I'll I'll
1: talk about the what does it mean to be fast. So, that my talk was really dedicated and focused on like image asset serving. You know, for for landing, we have a lot of uh, resolutions. We have a lot of images, right? You know, you have your carousels of apartments and they may have dozens of images on them. They have to be different sizes. Uh, That doesn't uh, make all of what you know about performance null and void. Like all those things are still true about your server-side performance and your JavaScript. This is really just to address the the image leg of the three-legged stool of performance, which is images, JavaScript, and server. Um, and so the tools we've been using are the uh, lighthouse tool provided by Google or Google PageSpeed Insights is the site that I think is using the same um, rubric underneath the covers. Uh, we chose that because I, I think it was it was at least in a Chromium blog, I can find the link that Google is going to badge slow websites in the future. They're moving toward a faster web and they're going to start denoting. Which websites are fast and which websites are slow, and so we thought, okay, we're going to use the tool that they're going to use to measure that to measure us, because you want to be you want to be fast. You want Google to think you're fast, uh, just because Google is Google, and that's where we get everything, right? Uh, so that's the primary tool we use. There are several other tools that have helped us, like I think um, webpagetest.org. Uh, yeah, webpagetest.org is a great tool that. Can give you a lot of insights as to how your website is performing, and then um, I I can't pronounce it. Imgix has a tool that just measures image weights, so you can see the image weights of your page relative to your total page weight, and they can suggest. And obviously, they're a, a service, so you know, try to sell you on their product of what you can do to improve your your uh, image performance.
0: That makes sense. One trick that we do at work is, well, I wouldn't call it a trick, but one service that we use at work is something called Kraken. And so we use their library. And so anytime we upload an asset through our CMS, we send it off to the Kraken service in order to compress it. And then we save that into the application. And the reason we do that is because while you want, because it's a CMS, we have users who are uploading assets and we used to depend upon them to compress their assets before they uploaded them. And we just realized that that's not really trustworthy. It's not something that our end users are really thinking about. And so any situation where we can compress the assets for them, we try to do that for them, just because you're right. It is important that your website is fast and that Google deems it as fast, so that way it's ranked higher.
1: Exactly. Yeah, we um we're we're doing something similar too. You're using Kraken to compress to
0: like webp or some next gen format. Bingo. Mhm. So for us, we are currently still on Paperclip, unfortunately. I have not gotten the port over to Active Storage yet. Now, granted, Thoughtbot's done a wonderful job of putting together the migration guide from moving from Paperclip to Active Storage, and this is why I was so excited about coming to your talk, because I am a little bit nervous about Active Storage being able to handle that kind of compression model in the background and be able to handle all those fancy formats. Right, Okay. So when you are running those tests to determine whether or not your websites are fast enough, do you find that the feedback that you're getting back from them are pointing you in the right direction of what you need to do? As in any good consultant, um, it
1: depends. No, I mean, they are, it's helpful feedback, but it's almost like uh, DSL or something like you have to know how to work it and how to read it in order for it to provide you value. Uh, like if you were to put in your website into Google PageSpeed Insights, the immediate feedback out of it um, is not immediately clear what to do. You know, it kind of grades you and it tells you these things, but it doesn't really tell you where to push. And it can be even a little deceiving because it gives you this list of opportunities on the page where it talks about next-gen formats and deferring JavaScript and all this stuff. But then it does disclaimer that those opportunities don't, directly affect your score they kind of indirectly affect things so it's not that solving that problem you know converting all of your image assets to next gen isn't going to make your site faster if you have you know 800 queries on the page there's just nothing you can do about that or if your images are you know even if they're compressed it's still somehow pulling down 12 megs of images those are all things that are it's still going to grade you poorly Uh, so you have to really take the time to understand it. That was part of this talk I was going to go through and kind of give the like TLDR versions of what those metrics are. There are six key components that they provide you. And uh, just from what our learnings were, where to push on each one in order to get an, a performance improvement. Because like the the very first one is called First Contentful Paint. And it's about like, what what's the first, how long does it take to get the first HTML, CSS, whatever, painted on the screen just to start. And right, that's before images or anything else. Like, that's mostly how fast is your server getting there and how many things do you have in document.ready that have to happen before the page kicks off. You know, so those were, this was kind of, I was going to try to shortcut for people. If you need to improve this metric, push on here and also give them the weights their weight they're all weighted differently in fact they give you six things and then one of the six is entirely deprecated and it's weighted 0x and they don't really tell you that while you're looking at it you have to go read the documentation to know
0: that otherwise you could be fixing something that has absolutely no bearing on your outcome oh my goodness i had no idea about that so i'm really glad that you shared that tip so keep that in mind listeners number six look at your documentation but the thing that i like about those tools is that in theory, you don't need to be incredibly technical in order to understand them, whether or not your website's fast or not. If you can read the documentation and understand the statistics, like I mentioned, my boss is very obsessed with making sure that our assets are small and that our page speed is fast. And he'll regularly run tests like this, but he doesn't normally contribute directly to the code base.
1: Yeah, we should hang out. I'm, I'm kind of in that same same bracket. Yeah, it, it's very good and it's, you can get, you know, we have front end specific developers, we're kind of all polyglot, but we have people who have specificities and it gives everybody, you know, a bite at the apple too. We can, we can collectively look at the results of this thing and digest the information and read the documentation and then spread the workload to improve you know, what's happening on the JavaScript side or, you know, reordering tags in the, in the head in order to make sure things are loading in the right order so we're getting better performance or server-side performance or images. And that's, that's what we've done, and it's uh, been a big benefit to kind of take that holistically as a group and look at it and then subdivide the
0: parts that we can. That's an excellent point. And I'd like to loop back to the beginning question of your abstract and that the the simple question, can active storage be used for image serving in your modern web application? At this point, would you recommend it?
1: I would, yeah. Active storage solves a ton of stuff that um, I won't say was like problematic, but like every tool, every technology, every framework has trade-offs. You know, everything in technology is a series of trade-offs and you have to decide what is the right set of trade-offs for your problem set so the things it solved are still like they they solve huge issues for us you know the the versioning like at a previous employer we had tons of problems because we had a lot of people who were contributing to image assets of things getting overwritten and I, you're still using paperclip but for those who aren't familiar paperclip or carrier wave they kind of sprinkled attributes all over your models that required some attachment so you had all these things everywhere on all these different tables, these columns that were uh, used for the, the tools, the, the gems to go do their jobs. And Active Storage brings all that together nicely. It centralizes it all, which makes it, if you're more SQL inclined, very easily queryable. You can do a lot of things just at a database level to do, um, you know, image statistics and things like that and it gives you that versioning so that every time something is uploaded it keeps the previous one so if there's a mistake you can revert back quickly the resizing right out of the box just doing it on the fly doing those transpositions from you know a full-size image to a thumbnail on the fly is great Uh, you know i always think about in rails when they make these things what is Basecamp using it for? You know, like it's probably Basecamp is using this for something, especially if it gets baked right into Rails. So what are they using it? And the security features of file attachments are huge, right? That's that's great, especially for if you if you need that kind of thing, if you need to provide a secure link to some uh asset, maybe not an image, maybe, you know, a text document or something, but it it expires in five minutes, that's awesome. And that just all comes right out the get go the problems are especially for images in order to get let's say you need to get a thumbnail like let's just run through that scenario if you need to get a thumbnail image off of something it's uploaded you know it's uploaded you call your you call dot variant on the image itself and you pass in a resize in order to get the thumbnail 300 pixels by 300 pixels or whatever it is what it's going to do is it's actually going to run two sql calls to your database pull it out run it through the transfer transformation in line, and then return you a 302 to your cloud provider, wherever that thing is hosted. So it's going to transpose it into the right size, push it into S3 or, you know, Google or Azure or whatever it is, and then it's going to return you a 302. So that whole chain in and of itself has you know some performance implications it's done very very well for what it is but if you're trying to get a bunch of images to the page really fast it can be problematic especially if you have you know partials that have an image in it and that partials rendered a bunch of times um, and the 302 can't be cached in a CDN and that's kind of one of the the big clips to it is CDNs just can't cache cache 300 redirects uh, so there are solutions out there for this. You know, this is the, the out-of-the-box approach probably won't work, but the benefits, in my opinion, outweigh the costs with, like, some minor, you know, patches put on top of it. And so it's a pretty well-documented um, uh, solution or workaround, I guess, where people have monkey-patched the representations controller, which handles the requests for image assets when you call that dot variant it calls this representation controller well they've it's a well documented it's even in a rails issue i think um I, i i can find the link for you and um it shows exactly what to do how to get a 200 so that your cdn can cache that asset effectively the other thing we've had to do we just had to learn on the fly is Pre-process all your images, right? All your all your variant resizes. If you know all the sizes ahead of time, just go ahead and do it. As soon as that image is uploaded, go ahead and do it. And the other nuance there is go ahead and do it, but go ahead and do it in the background. Because if you upload, you know, 15 images and they all have 15 resizes, you know, it's going to try to do that in your request response if you don't push that to a background job up front. So those are kind of like the three caveat solutions That I wanted to highlight as part of this talk where it's still good and you still want to use it. You just want to use it and make sure you do these extra things to make sure that your system is still fast and performs well.
0: You hit on so many interesting things there. First of all, I am nervous about active storage and playing well with CDNs because we're such heavy CloudFront users. Yeah. That I'm not positive that the 302 redirects would cause an issue with us. It would almost be something I would need to test to make sure it's not. Though, because we are a nonprofit. A, you know a theater company we regularly render a ton of partials with images in them and whether or not that's going to be very taxing on the system would be interesting because we are so dependent on the cdn and then also you raised a really good point about doing image processing as a background job currently we don't because we typically upload only a few images at a time but i could see a situation where i could really improve the system where you could upload a, a lot of images but we certainly wouldn't want to hit the cloudfront max and you know end up timing out our users because they're waiting on images to be resized and we're such heavy sidekick users that it seems like those two could be paired together nicely.
1: Right. Yeah. Same problem. You know, we'll have you know, we may bring 30 to 100 apartments online like we, we get a building or a series of buildings and all the images get uploaded mostly at once. Uh, And so we go through this process of resizing them and you really have to push all that work down into some background queues. And we have fallbacks. Luckily for us, we are, um, in doing this process, this is all done ahead of time before we present it to an end user, before we list it for somebody to see. So we have some time in between the image upload time and when an end user actually sees it so that we can make sure we get it right.
0: But these were just all of the like, snafus we ran into along the way. Well, this conversation has got me really excited about porting us over to Active Storage. So I super thank you for that. Um, Now, while I haven't used Active Storage too directly yet, I've used a little bit, but not a lot. um, Do you feel that Active Storage feels feature complete? And if not, where do you hope Active Storage's future will lead to?
1: Well, I'd like to see the issue about CDN caching addressed. you know, I think The community would I think it was actually on the on the github issue for rails it was supposed to come in 6.1 and I don't think it did so I think they are working to try and solve this I you know I think a lot of people have needs the need to serve images and having an out-of-the-box solution that's just baked right into rails is probably a good idea and I would also love to see it handle uh the compressed formats and the WP and the JPEG XR in a way that attaches to the canonical, the same way the variant resizings attach, you know, it all kind of baked together. But um, another thing we had to do for handling WebP compression and those kind of things is we effectively had to kind of reinvent the wheel and we created a, a data modeling structure very similar to what is in your active storage attachments in your blobs, but alongside it that has you know, our compression formats, and that's how we had to solve that. And that felt very like reinventing the wheel for potentially a pretty simple problem.
0: There just wasn't a, a, a straightforward solution for us. That's tough because if a major change comes to active storage, now you're carrying a variant and you're gonna have to make sure that you keep up with it, whether or not that's new migrations or new validations or things like that. And I certainly think that's a clever way to solve it, but I agree with you. It would be great if we could solve that in-house.
1: Yeah. Oh, and, you know, the, just the the unnerving feeling of monkey patching a Rails, you know, controller onto itself and, like, what happens in the upgrade paths of those is just terribly unnerving from, like, a, you know, people who have gone through the, you know, Rails 2 to Rails 3, Rails 3 to Rails 4 upgrades. You know, you're like, oh, please don't do this, but... Uh, that, I'd love to see those things solved. And I, I do believe that at least the uh, CDN issue will be something that will come. I think enough people have uh, published the issue, published solutions around the issue that uh, the team is looking at it.
0: That's great. Uh, it's so It's so good to hear that there's so much community support for active storage already, even though it just came out in Rails 5. Mm-hmm. So Mark, I'd love to ask you what your thoughts are on the future of the Ruby and Rails communities
1: yeah that's a great question um so we did birmingham on rails in birmingham this past january we feel very fortunate as organizers to have gotten that conference up and off the ground and shipped before we knew any of this was coming uh so we feel very blessed that we got to do that that really opened my eyes into the the uh there are a lot of regional small regional ruby and ruby on rails conferences around the world Uh, ben greenberg i think spoke at our conference and he published something about all of the regional conferences that he went to kind of worldwide which i had no idea and i know you know years ago there used to be all kinds of ruby and ruby on rails conferences throughout the united states that were smaller you know rocky mountain ruby and there was midwest and they all had each region had their own um their own community event i guess you know as a national event but it's also kind of community driven and Uh, more focused or whatever. I'd love to see that to continue to expand. I don't know if uh, I just have been out of the know and these have been going on this whole time and I haven't known or if we're actually seeing somewhat of a resurgence in those things Um, because I find technology and technology choices tend to go around in this big circle. You know, everybody kind of gets on the bandwagon about this new thing and that thing and then somehow we come back to, you know, when I started, everybody was like, really, really into functional programming, you know, 12, 15 years ago, that was like it. And then, uh, oh, no objects. We're doing objects now. Everybody's doing objects now. Oh no, no functional, functional. This is, you know, this is how we're going to keep ourselves from writing bad code. But I'd love to see that continue to expand of the small community engagements and maybe even getting them together and making them more interconnected so that these things can somehow work together to make a bigger network of, Rubyists.
0: That would be huge. I completely agree with you. So Mark, how can listeners follow you? Sure. Uh,
1: Markhutter.com is my website. It links out to all the relevant spots, Twitter and GitHub and email and such. Uh, If you want to get at me more directly, mrkhutter on Twitter is my handle. Um, I tweet kind of a lot and I probably spend entirely too much time on Twitter, especially lately. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I couldn't imagine possibly why, but thank you so much for <laughs> for guesting on the podcast today and sharing all your insights around active storage. Now, if you excuse me, I'm going to go uh, browse landing for a good hour now. So thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me.